people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this special episode, I am talking with a number of people who had movies at the 2022 Fantasia Film Festival. First up, we're going to hear from director Molly Elfman and actress Katie Porter about the film Next Exit, which is currently streaming on Hulu. After that, we'll hear from Rodrigo Godinho all about his film The Breach, which is, as far as I can tell, not out for public consumption yet. The same goes for the third movie that you're going to hear about, Relax I'm From the Future, where I spoke with director Luke Higginson and actress Gabrielle Graham. With that one, I can't even find a trailer online. The one person you won't be hearing from is filmmaker Satoshi Miki, who had two films at the festival, What to Do with a Dead Kaiju and Convenience Story. Unfortunately, both Mr. Miki and his translator were a little too far from the computer microphone to pick them up properly. I tried some heroic measures to rescue that interview, but it just didn't happen. And it's so bad that I'm not even going to be able to air it. That said, let's go ahead and play the trailer for Next Exit, and then our interview right after that. It is irrefutable. Our consciousness continues beyond our physical bodies. My life beyond study is strictly a volunteer program. So why can some people see ghosts? The strong connection between Rio and his father brought them together, and the rest as well. History in the making. I'm taking a trip. Where are you going? This is difficult to say. So this is supposed to be goodbye? I'll I'll come back and haunt you. (laughs) Are you two together? She should be so lucky. When's your appointment? Seven days. Mine's in five. You serial killer? Yeah, no. 6 a.m. the car leaves. Sharp. Razor. We're not pals. We're not in this together, okay? How many people know what it's like to be us right now? At our institute, we now bridge dozens of new participants daily from this world to the next. Once you're in a state of passing, we terminate your physical form. Three, two, one. Wait. Let's try and have some fun today, please. Okay, so what's fun? I did it! I want my life to mean something. I don't want to hate life. I want to embrace what's next. You practice that? You got like an Instagram handle for the afterlife? What you do here still matters. You know that every time you disappear, another little piece of my heart breaks. Lost everyone. So? I never even had anyone. But I did. Ah! I can't make it stop. You can stop. I see it. This darkness. It's irresistible. Molly, are you related to Richard Elfman? Yes, that's my uncle. Okay, fantastic. I've had him on the show before. Oh, fantastic. For which projects? For The Forbidden Zone. 
Yeah, the new one or the other one? The original. That came out when I was very, 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 very young. I need to watch it again as an adult. (laughs) I was like, Dad, what are you doing? It's a weird film to see your parents in. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) My mom shows up in there too. Yeah, it's fun. So were you always fated to work in show business? I tried not to. I went to school for writing and I've always wanted to be a writer. I was a journalist for years. I was actually a professional horseback rider for a while and was competing and doing all of that. And actually my first job in Hollywood, I was teaching horseback riding at the time. And one of my students was Missy Stabile, who used to be one of the headline producers over at Universal. And she said, you'd make a good producer. And I was like, nah. And she was like, I'll tell you what, come work for me. We'll ride horses in the morning and then you'll learn how to produce. And I was like, life could be worse. She was one of the most inspiring, amazing women that I have ever met who taught me how to produce with compassion and also strength simultaneously. My way into the industry was actually through Missy. And honestly, not through my parents at all or my family at all. Although I do think there was probably a piece of me in my brain that knew that I had permission to. It wasn't like, just to say, I I think I probably had permission to, but at the same time, my parents definitely weren't pushing me towards it. In knowing the challenges with the industry, I think it's hard for a parent to encourage their children to know that they're going to live a very challenging, struggling life by taking that road. Now, I do think that's why I've got a different path with the genre, though, where I do think I'm trying to carve out a different space for myself a little bit than what I've seen them do. And Katie, you've been acting for a long darn time. How did you get into things? I started acting when I was about 18, just doing like high school plays. And then I went to college and majored in theater, which is a ridiculous thing to major in. If you go to a tiny liberal arts school, I think it's different if you go to Juilliard or like a conservatory. It's just one of those things that really made sense to me, just taking a body class, a voice class, getting comfortable with language, looking someone in the eye and holding space for someone like all of that stuff just really resonated with me as a young person. I didn't really know what it meant. I just knew it felt really good. And originally, I thought I would just stay in theater and maybe go to Chicago or New York and do regional plays. But when I was 20, 20, 21, I auditioned for The Young and the Restless on a whim. And I ended up not getting apart, but I met some people who really encouraged me to go to LA. So I graduated college and went to LA at 22 and then just got a waitressing job and was a nanny forever and just did the hustle. No real connections to entertainment, had no idea what I was doing, but met Mike Flanagan like a month into living in LA through mutual friends. And he obviously is like the first person to get me into a film And that was when I was 24. But it's just been like a slow burn finding my way in the industry. One of those early films that you mentioned, Oculus, directed by Mike Flanagan, stars Karen Gillan. And it seems like she's a through line for both of y'all, because I know that, Molly, you've worked with Karen before Next Exit, correct? Oculus was our big 
project that we all met each other on. I met Karen on Oculus too. I was at the time producing a film for Mike that was supposed to go directly after that one that never actually happened because then we ended up making Before I Wake instead. And so I was actually prepping that one in Alabama and stopped by set. And I'm actually an extra in the auction scene if you want to go back and check it out. Yes, 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 yeah. And I remember I met Karen and she showed up that day. We're all getting loaded into the van and there was somebody running late, Karen. And she came running over and she was like, hello. And I was like, this woman is ridiculous and I love it. And then we met again more formally after that. And I read her script and we worked together. I met her there too. Yeah. I had a scene that was actually cut out of Oculus, but Karen there briefly. And then we became friends later on in Los Angeles. Tell me about Next Exit. How did this project come about? No, this has been a long time in the making for me. And it started a long time ago when I was still trying to find my voice and figure out what I wanted to say and going through a lot of dark kind of stuff in my life, a lot of tragedies and trying to figure out my way through them. So I started writing this. I put it down a million times. There was always something else to do throughout all the years. And then whenever I would caught in something and I didn't now, what to do, I kept finding that I naturally was gravitating back towards the script. It kept being the thing that would bring me out of that dark place and bring me out of the darkness. It was actually Rose McIver, who it was four years-ish ago now. I was producing a short film for her that she was had written and was directing. And she asked me what I wanted to do. And I told her about this script. And she actually brought me to a horror convention that she was doing in Hawaii. And she said, you're not allowed to leave this hotel room until you finish this script. And silly and it's how I realized the beauty of that is nobody really was giving me permission to just be a writer at that time. There was always something else I was supposed to be doing. And being given that permission really allowed me to finally finish a draft that I could then bring to the producers that ended up coming on board, Derek Bechet and Arne Hakopian, who also did we did many more drafts from there. That wasn't the draft by any means. And then we got Lindsay, Lindsay Helms and Joel Nevels from Helm Street to come on. And they also, it is a dream to have executive producers that actually believe in the creative. That was an entirely different process than I ever had before in my entire past. So it really was a dream. We kept saying, this isn't how it happens. And consistently, I will say, this isn't how it happens. Katie, when do you come on board with this? Was it like end of 2019? Ms. B sent me this a draft of the script to read. I sent it to you right after I went with Rose there, right after I went to Hawaii, which would have been like 2018, maybe? Yeah. 2018, 2019. And I was hunting Katie, and Katie was, it was funny because we'd wanted to work together for so long. Yeah. And so I had to hunt her. I was a little hesitant. I had had a lot of like close calls with casting and then it didn't go my way. So I think there was a part of me that didn't quite believe the part was mine. And I was intimidated by the part two. I wasn't really sure what to do with it. And I think that was just like a fear response, which usually when there's fear, you should dive in <laughs> because you're probably going to grow, which I did on our set. And with this one, she offered me the part, which I couldn't believe out of every actors she could have hired. I was like, really? <laughs> me? Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Yes. Me? Okay. I'm going to do it. Yeah. That's what it felt like. But yeah. There was this push pull and then settled into it. And commitment. How do you approach a character like Rose? How do you build that? 
a lot of talking with Molly. She was really helpful with helping me create her emotional journey. I kept trying to think about what healing looks like and how it's a healing is there's contractions and expansion and contractions and expansion. And when is she contracted and when is she exploding through pain? When is she healing? When is she in trauma? Some of that was manifested physically. Like we talked a lot about body movement and the clothes, the costumes that wears. That was really helpful, like feeling really layered and then peeling off the layers. And then just making choices and going into that fear. I was talking about where it's, this could be wrong and dumb, but I'm going to try it. (laughs) And then you either pull back or you push forward. And I had a great director who knew the characters inside and out. It's pretty extraordinary actually to work with a writer director because they have all the answers for you. Malia, do you always direct while you write? Thus far, but that's not by choice necessarily. I would be very open to working with somebody else. There is one project that I'm coming up that was a script that was brought to me that I was intrigued by and potentially will. I have another one that I was brought and rewriting it right now. I think it's just important for me for directing that there has to be, there's a couple of very important things that there has to be a message in it that I relate to and can connect with and that I find important and that there's a reason why the film should be in the world. I am not a nihilist and I am not someone who wants to create because it's fun to make a movie. I do feel like if you're going to make a film, it needs to have a spot and it needs to have an intention for what you hope. Now, whether or not that hope comes through and that intention comes through and anything is successful, you work your best to achieve. But I think that it's important to start with that. And for me, this film was for anybody who has felt depression, anxiety, mental illness, darkness of any kind, that there is hope and that it's not coming from a place of everything will be okay. It's actually going to be a lot of hard work and it's going to be a challenge. And actually it'll be fun too at times, really in odd ways that you're not expecting. And I really wanted to capture that. And that's something that I really personally related to. So I am writing a couple of things. I am starting to work with writing partners. And I love that because I am like intention and emotion and feeling. Love somebody to help me with that structure. That Mm -hmm. is the one. That's why I made the structure of this one so simple because structure isn't necessarily my strong suit. I think my stronger suit is emotions. You said that you were writing this in 2018, give the script to Katie in 2019. I seem to remember there was something that happened in 2020 that might have affected your production. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) All of that happened. I'm talking to Katie and then COVID happened. And I was actually supposed to go make another film at that time. I was scheduled to go do something else. And there was so much time and so much energy. We were cast, we were financed, everything. And then it just fell apart and I was devastated. And I was sitting there. And once again, I went to the script. I also didn't do well at the top of COVID. I had a lot of anxiety. I know some people were just dealt with it. I was, I thought the world was ending potentially. <laughs> like that's where my head went. I'm a very nervous person in general. And so I went back to the script and actually it made so much more sense to me. The idea of one thing happens and then look at the ripple effect. And you can think it's going to go one way and it will for one person, but it'll do something else for somebody else. And so the script became so much more relevant. And that's actually when I started working with my producers on the script and doing another draft to make it a little bit more timely. Ironically enough, Helm Street, that's right when I met them and they were okay with making it during a pandemic. There was almost nothing else we could make. And oddly, 
potting with a group of under 20 people and driving across the country and buying out motels that nobody was in became the safer way of doing it than trying to run it traditionally. The hardest part about doing a, a film during COVID is how do you go home? What about the loved ones are there? How do you, we were all isolated. We were literally in this bubble. So also it was January, 2021 when we started. So we also have the insurrection in the background. We also have the world on fire all around us. And we were in this little pod in five Dodge caravans traveling across the country. And it oddly was one of the most kind of heartening experiences that I could have had that even in some of the darkest times that being with one another and supporting one another, life is really all about. And that is inherently part of the message of the movie. So it was very interesting to be experiencing it while we were making it. That's another thing is that whenever I'm in those places, people always make me feel better. It is others. Whenever I get too caught up in me, I always have to look at other people and other experiences. So I was terrified of COVID every single day. And every single day when everybody tested negative, I felt like it was a gift. And so I just appreciated it. Kitty, what was your experience like? How was that for you moving throughout all these locations? And I'm sure it was a little bit of a ghost town at times when you're showing up in these places. It was really special. I like shooting on the road. I learned it felt like being a part of a circus. It felt almost like akin to being in a theater troupe in like medieval times, except we're in cars and it's present day. But you know what I mean? Like a traveling circus that's coming to perform in the area. There was something really satisfying about that and bonding. So when we would go and shoot, it felt like everybody really had each other's back and we were all in it for the storytelling. And it was an adventure. I mean, it's always an exciting thing to drive across the country just to see the world and see it with people you love. And it was fun. I had a great time. It must have been such a coordination effort just to rent all those places and get all those Dutch caravans and just get all that stuff working. Yeah. <laughs> I producer is hearing over my shoulder right now, and I just can hear I can hear his brain heavy breathing, <laughs> yeah. spinning as you were asking that question. It was at the same time. I think oddly, what it does is you don't have a lot of options, and so you lean into what you have. I think one of the challenges when you get back to LA is it's we can do this and we can do that. We're on the road. The car isn't working, and they and these are the three places you can go. What are you gonna do? And it makes you be nimble and think on your feet. And I also think it was such a gift. It's funny that life sometimes gives you what you need, but I love to plan. I love to be organized. I love a color organized calendar and Excel sheets. And I had to show up every single day and be like, "This wasn't what I planned. What is the intention of this scene? What do I want from these characters?" And shoot that. And it made me can stay with the emotions and the characters and didn't let me get too heady at any time. And I'm so grateful for that because I, I got to stay in a much more vulnerable place because of that. And now I don't want to make a movie any other way. I would like a little bit more organization. That would be nice. And a little bit more resources and better food. <laughs> There's a couple of things that would have been nice. We were in like literally this place on the border of Texas and New Mexico that was so lovely and hospitable to us. There was just very few options. I think there was a McDonald's at Taco Bell and the place that we ordered our food from. And gluten-free 
dairy intolerance. Molly was struggling a little bit with that. She managed to get food poisoning as well. Yeah, of course she did. Trying to be super healthy was the wrong way to go. You just needed to lean the other direction, I think. The people doing the hash browns were much better off than I was. (laughs) So as a writer-director, how are you with your writing? Because I imagine you have to let people improv a lot. You have to have that ability to be loose and not have to stick to the script as far as your calendar or the script as far as the script goes. I think the most important thing for the script is that you better have done your work for why those words are on the page so that when you go off the page, you're doing it for the right reasons. So that's actually where I like being a writer because I know, for instance, I've written that line 15 different ways. They don't know all of that. They don't need to know all of that. So when all of a sudden something's not working, I already have that in the bank account in my brain where I can be like, actually, yeah, let's spin this way. And we were pretty good at, again, always knowing the intention of the scene. And all of the big scenes, they just nailed completely and totally and were very accurate. And And I do want to say that both Rahul and Katie, incredibly accurate actors. And then we always did a little bit of a fun take because I love that. I love that spontaneity. Both of them were throwing out things, especially when you're just driving in a car. I would always do the full take and then I would just keep going and just keep throwing stuff at them. And I, I love that. It also just keeps it so fresh. It keeps it so open. Both of them throwing down some amazing, they'd always do it the way like it was intended. And then I'd always give them a chance to do what they wanted. And I love those takes. It's just so much fun. But they knew the characters. You can improv when you actually know the characters. Like Katie, you have one of my favorite ones. Your time. You're right, that person. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's not me. That's her. But it character. Yeah, it just blew out of her mouth. And I was like, Perfect. Yeah, she knew the character. She was so, that day, she was so in the zone. And it's one of my favorite monologues in the film. And she just nailed it. And so when those things come out, they're coming out from the right place. It's not somebody trying to fuck with your writing or anything like that. It's wanting to enhance it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and very truthful and vulnerable. I know that you've played Tribeca. Where else has the film played before? We're about to be at Fantasia in about three hours. Yeah. That's our international premiere. So yeah, that's Tribeca was our premiere a couple of weeks ago. Fantasia is now the international premiere. I believe we have North Bend that we're going to. And then there's some other ones that I don't know that I'm allowed to say. So I'm not going to say right now. Do I know? And we're playing Fright Fest as well in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited about. And I think there's going to be a couple of others. And I think we should have some news out about the film soon. And I'm very excited about that. Was Tribeca, was that the first time you guys saw it with an audience? I did a, ca- a couple of cast and crews before, so I definitely had that. It was the first time with all strangers. Or not all strangers, because our cast and crew is still there. I was so relieved when people were laughing. Oh, yeah, and you didn't get to see that one. I actually chickened out and didn't watch. Tribeca, I went out to dinner instead. <laughs> I just wasn't. I wasn't ready to watch it with an audience, but we did a screening in Los Angeles for some folks and watched it with them in a beautiful theater, and it was satisfying. Are you going to stick around for Fantasia screening? I don't know. We're in Montreal, so I've seen the movie. It's like, it's not mine. It's for the audience. It's for the people now. So I just want people to have their experience with it. What are you working on now? I know you've got a lot of projects in the hopper. Have you already shot all of Fall of the House of Usher? Yeah, I, I wrapped a couple weeks a weeks ago on that project. And I'm 
think I'm unemployed right now. Yeah. I was like, am I? I'm pretty sure I'm unemployed. Just waiting for auditions to come in. Hopefully something will come up. Emily, how many projects do you work on at a time? One million. There's a lot. I will be going into production in a couple of weeks for a film I'm producing with Laura Moss. I am in the process of setting up the next one that I'll be directing and very excited about that. Is there a good place for people to keep up with a film to find out where it's playing and when it's coming out on streaming or digital or any of that? It is on next exit underscore film on Instagram and next exit film on Twitter. We have to update that Twitter though, because we haven't been very good and better at Instagram. I post everything on Molly Elfman. So very excited. (laughs) But yeah, I, we can't wait for more people to be able to access this film and see it. I hope that it resonates and I hope that people enjoy it and have some fun with it. Me too. Molly, Katie, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking with you. Good luck with your international premiere. Thanks, Mike. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Amy LaFoy spotted it first. Look like a local you? I don't know how you would tell. You ever seen anything like this, Buzz? guy's insides have been shredded. It's Dr. Cool Parsons, physics genius. He leased a place up at Lynx Creek about 15 months ago. I gotta head up to Lynx Creek. Gonna need some transportation. Something happened to this house since I last saw it. It's not the same. Generator's out. Let me see if I can get it working. They are opening the gates to hell here. And I'm telling you, Parsons, he's at the center of it. Up next, we're going to hear from director and Rue Morgue magazine, Hancho Rodrigo Gudino, all about his film, The Breach. Rodrigo, thank you so much for your time today. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you about The Breach. Do you mind, though, if I ask you a little bit about The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee? Please, go ahead. I'm so curious as far as how you put that one together. That was your first feature, if I'm not mistaken, what that process was like, and then I want to compare that versus The Breach. The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee was my first film, yeah. It was something that I wrote. It came out of my heart and my mind. It was a horror film that had some high thematic aspirations. It was an experiment because it was one person, another person. You hear them, you don't see them. There's another person you're seeing, you're with them. There's only two people in the movie, but they're not connecting they're speaking monologues and so on. And anyway, so it was a, an experimental film that I did on one location. I found this incredible location and addressed it to suit the movie. Now, with The Breach, 
this is very different because this is a script that came to me. I didn't write it. I rewrote it when it arrived on my desk. It was called Gone Up River. It had to do with people turning into bugs. I basically said, look, I'll shoot this if I can rewrite it. They gave me the go-ahead, Raven Banner and the Craig Davidson, a.k.a. Nick Cutter, and his co-writing partner, Ian Weir. And a lot of that was solving plot problems and so on and so forth. But I wanted to obviously imbue it with my visual style and also my kind of horror happy places, <laughs> as a better way of putting it, and build tension up until that final third act where we get to see everything warm out of the ground and we get to see it in broad daylight. So there were two different processes. As I said, one of it, one of them was very, it was more personal. This one is a bit less, but still really interesting and challenging and fun to do. Having the horror take place out of doors and in broad daylight, it's so refreshing. It's so much nicer than seeing just a creepy basement. You've got a creepy basement and you've got a lot of creepy stuff in here, but that broad daylight really helps mark this as a, a separate thing. I'm happy to hear you say that. I think that so many horror films, yeah, rely on the dark and the shadows to generate that sense of suspense, which is legit and totally fair. I think that maybe something that I learned with Rosalind Lee was that the entire movie spans one entire night, and that can be a little bit monotonous. It was nice halfway through the movie to be able to have the light come up, and we're just halfway through the movie. The sun's coming up, and we're going to do the rest in the full light of day. It certainly was challenging to shoot that way because, of course, weather and light doesn't cooperate. As nighttime, you, you can really control it better. But I'm really happy that we did it that way, and I'm glad it resonated with I was really impressed by your sets and the amount of wires and just insanity when it came to this electronic device that, you know, we don't know what it does for so much of the movie. It looked fantastic and the whole cottage in the woods looks terrific. Oh, thanks. That was a lot of doing. I have to thank our production designer and the people on set for putting together the, uh, the machine. And I should say Jim Goodall is a production designer. And with respect to the, the house and so on and so forth, the, that house was built in a hotel ballroom, in several ballrooms and, and parts outside of the hotel and so on, where we had taken over, shot a good percentage of the movie. So it was really put together piecemeal uh, or shot piecemeal and then put together in, in editing to make it look like one house. But that house as such doesn't exist. So I'm happy that you liked it so much. And where did you get your cast? They are very solid. A great director once said to me, you know, that casting is 90% of the role, right? You cast well and you don't have to worry about directing the actor so much. And that's really how I came to this project. I was looking for serious actors and I was actually surprised. I didn't think that Alan Hawkeye, you never know, right? But I didn't think that maybe some of these actors, maybe when they saw the script, they would be like, oh, no. This is maybe beneath me material. I was just really happy that they that that they didn't look at it that way, and they were just great sports about it. Natalie Brown, who's a stellar, just a stellar actor, she's just incredible, and she was able to to get into the gooey and the gory makeup and just go for that head wound and everything. And she just really brought it. But 
also, obviously, outside of that, they imbued their characters with, they lifted those characters right off the page. And that's what we need in movies. In horror movies, particularly, a lot of times when directors might lose sight of, of acting and characterization, when they have their eye on the gimmick of the movie or the gore effects and so on and so forth. But for me, it begins and ends with the actor. If the actor and the characters aren't alive, if they're not three-dimensional, then the movie's going to suffer immensely. So I'm glad. I'm really happy. And you're not the first one to mention it. So I'm happy that's, that people are taking notice of that. Was Fantasia, was that your premiere? That, is, that was a world premiere of the movie, yeah. It was a great premiere. Gosh, it sounded so good. It looked so good. I was like a kid in a candy store. I was really happy. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was just really uh, everything I could have hoped for, really. How long did it take for the whole film to come together? From the time that I got the script to the time I was shooting was, was actually quite fast. It could have only been a couple of months. I shot the movie in, I believe it was September of 2020, somewhere in there. And so ever since then, I've been posting. So the post process was quite long. It was about a year, I would say. And the film was finished. I turned it in, I think it was May. In terms of movie standards, it was actually quite quick. But uh, you're looking at, what, a year and a half, two years, something like that? It feels like there was something else going on in 2020, maybe like a global pandemic or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was one of the things when the script landed on my desk. I thought, shit, I'd love to do a movie come on and we're everyone's stuck in this pandemic let's turn this this pandemic frowny into a smiley and thank god this the script was solid and thank god that everybody was on board for me to make some changes to it and away we went shooting the film during the pandemic certainly had its challenges but ultimately it was it was really exciting it was really fun and i hope some of that translated onto the screen i'm unfamiliar with the original source material which was what an audible exclusive it's funny i never read the novel and i don't know anything about it i know when i got the script it was called gone up river as a movie that was a script about people turning into bugs so i did change quite a bit i changed characters i changed relationships i've changed uh some genders i i added plot points that took out plot points i introduced the whole idea of, of a breach and using Meg's character as a, a as the as a breach basically that this creature uses her to get into the world. I did a bunch of things to it. You know, the the book came out later, or the Audible, and it's called the Breach. Maybe I added some stuff from the script to the book. I'm not too sure. <laughs> I wanted it to be a bit more mysterious, something a little bit less defined, a little bit more visually interesting. So the idea of somebody trying to come into our world and using people's bodies, but failing through this machine, succeeding when he does it through this woman's body, through, through her child, basically. A lot of these ideas are buried in the script. And if you saw Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee, that I don't like to give people the story up front, I like them to investigate. Uh, it's a great place to investigate a story and to immerse yourself in it, but to be an active viewer. I wanted some of that in this script as well, or in this movie, to get the audience to not just sit there and be told the story, but to invite them into participating in it and try to figure out 
what it's about and what's actually going on. There was one name in the opening credits that surprised me, which was Slash. How did he get involved with this? I've known Slash for about 10 years. We worked on a Western together, a horror Western that never got off the ground. It was called Cutthroat's Nine. It was a remake of a 1972 Italian-Spanish co-production. And we worked really well together when we were working on that. And it's too bad it never got off the ground, but we saw eye to eye in a lot of things. And he's got a really good eye for stories. So when this came along, I sent him the script. I said, what do you think of this? He said, this is cool. And I said, do you want to produce? Do you want to do some music? He said, yeah, let's do it. It just happened really organically and quite quickly. Because like I said, I got the script and a few months later I was shooting. So Rodrigo, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and keep up with the movie online? So you can check out ruemorg.com, ru-morg.com. There'll be some updates there, but also uh, just launched an Instagram. I just got on Instagram, eyes underscore wide underscore cut on Instagram. And there'll be news I'll be posting there about where I am, where the movie's playing and everything else related to the breach. Thank you so much, Rodrigo. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for having me on your show. And last but not least, we're going to hear from director Luke Higginson and star Gabrielle Graham about Relax, I'm from the Future. Enjoy the interview. Luke, I want to start with you. Can you tell me a little bit about you and your background? I know that you've done a ton of editing over the years. And then tell me a little bit more about that and your directorial efforts. I went to film school and most people who go to film school want to be writers and directors, but I, I went and I really fell in love with the editing process and I spent a lot of hours in the editing room and that sort of became my career path out of school. I, I immediately went into freelance editing and did indie films, music videos, TV, whatever, and that's been how I've made money, but I've always wanted to do writing directing never stopped doing that and just done little shorts paid for out of pocket whenever i could actually the very first thing that i edited out of film school was a micro budget feature written directed starring and produced by tim doran and april mullen of wango films who produced relax so literally the very beginning of my career i was with these people who helped me make my first feature which is a very fun full circle thing Gabrielle, how about yourself? When did you get into acting? I've always been a performer. I didn't get serious about it until I went to university. Once it was time for me to graduate high school, I was like, I either want to be a midwife or I want to be an actor. And then like, I didn't have the science credits. So I just went to York or like I was in the conservatory there. And then I studied there for like for five years. And then right out of university, I got an agent. And then how long? I don't remember how long ago that was. I think it might be eight. Or nine years now, I think, I'm guessing. But yeah, I've always loved performing and being on stage. This was based on a short film that you made, Luke, back in, what was it, 27? 2013. 2013, wow. That's wild. Can you tell me about how that was making that? Since graduating, I just tried to make little shorts whenever I could for as little money as I could. And I just had this little idea stuck in my head of, I fundamentally like the idea of someone as sort of consequential as a time traveler having no good plan or set way of behaving. And and that sort of little seed of an idea was just stuck in the back of my head. And I one day just sat down and banged out a 
script that was very close to the finished short and sent it to some people. People liked it. My my good friend, Zachary Bennett, I asked him to play the lead and uh, he did it for free, which is wonderful. And he's actually in the feature right now. He plays Chuck in the feature. And yeah, it just all came together really quickly and easily. And it was fun to make and people liked it pretty immediately. And they played TIFF and the sort of number one thing that people said when they watched it was, so what are you doing with this? You're doing a feature, you're doing a TV show. And so I thought about that for the first time when people started saying that and proceeded to spend a decade banging my head against the wall trying to turn it into a feature script that I liked. But it, yeah, that's how it came to be. Was there a moment when it all came into place for you and you're like, oh, this is how I'm going to turn this into a feature? No, it was more of a slow process of many versions and revisions. And the main thing that made it fall into place was showing an early version of the script to a few people I trusted. And across the board, the relationship between Casper and Holly was the thing that people connected to, was the thing that people liked. And so that went from significant but side part of the script to really the central sort of focus and relationship of the film, which was, I think, what unlocked it into being something that worked. When did you feel that it was ready for prime time and you started pursue this as a feature? Basically, when Tim, my producer, read it and said, I think this can be a movie. He got really excited by it when I showed it to him a few years ago. I was editing a film that he produced and talking about it, and he was interested, and he immediately was like, I think we can make this. It's not going to be too expensive. I think it's got some legs. And then we proceeded to, yeah, try and figure out casting. And if I can loop in Gabby here, we got all of our lead cast in different ways, but Gabby is the one person who I found early and it was from watching Possessor. I was just watching Possessor randomly because I wanted to see it. And I was immediately like, who is this? This is, this person pops on the screen incredibly. And I looked her up. I looked up. She was playing a character in that movie named Holly, which seemed magical and it's a comedy. And I was like, I wonder if she's funny. And I looked up and saw she did the Lena Waithe show 20s. And so I watched that show, which was really good. And she's great on it. And I was like, and even though it's a really different character than Holly, she just clearly had comedic chops and had timing. And I was at that moment on, I was like, this is my Holly and we need to get her. And I begged her to do it. And she said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I could have not. Gabriel, what did you think when you first saw the script? Well, yeah, I just, I couldn't not say yes. I love the script. And I love, I just love the fact that I get to, it was so different from what I usually get to play. And I don't think like I've ever seen or rarely ever see like a black, like punk, a black, a punk black girl on screen. So I was like, this is so different from what I've done. I would love to do this and explore this world. Like she's just so badass and unapologetically herself but also lazy <laughs> and that it was like <laughs> very much me to the T and yeah. And funny. And like, even seeing it, I was like, you don't realize how funny it, exactly how funny it is until you watch it. And it's even funnier watching it. So yeah, I was like, I have to do it. Tell me about the actual shooting of it. And when did you make this? Was this during the pandemic? Yeah, we shot it end of November through December. It was 18 days. We, I think December 23rd 
2021 was the last day of shooting. We only had Reese for 15 days. It was a lot, a lot to get in a very short time. And as, as my AD was fond of reminding me, there was a lot of locations in my film for a low budget movie. <laughs> it was a real organizational challenge and a lot of lines for specifically for Gabby and Reese to learn and deliver a lot of lines per day. But yeah, we got it done. It does not look like a low budget film. I would not think that, but it has a, a good sheen to it. And then I think casting some real good faces and some real solid actors, of course, Gabrielle, yourself included, it is so nice because you think that, you know, even the title of it is coming from Casper, but then the whole film hinges on Holly and just her reaction to all of this and just feeding him those nachos right from the beginning. And you don't know where we're going to go with this. And Julian Richings, I love him. And he always brings such a great presence to films. And that face is so good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, he's a legend. He's, uh, and I, I wanted him in the film and asked him to be in it. And I, I was unprepared for how unbelievably sweet he would be. He's like the nicest man in the world. And yeah, it was a pleasure, pleasure to work with that. He's amazing. Yeah. It just feels like you had so many moving parts, just like you said, all the locations and just all of these kind of monologues as far as what's going to happen, all the characters, you just kept adding more characters. I thought that we were done. It was going to be like a two person thing, then a three person thing. And it just kept building. I really appreciated that. My AD did not, but thank you. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> Gabriel, what was your experience like on it? Oh, I loved it. I had so much fun. Like I said before, I'd like just being able to explore, just being like a punk badass was fun. And like listening to the music every day, I did that a lot. And working with, yeah, even working with Reese was fun. It was interesting because we have like nothing in common, but like on screen, there was so much chemistry. And I was like, even like when I was watching, I was like, oh, it actually, it worked really well. But yeah, no, I had lots of fun. It was good. In praise of Gabby and Reese in particular, they, like we said, we shot in December in Hamilton, Ontario, and it it was cold. And the plan for the film was to shoot it in late summer, early fall. And that's also what sort of the wardrobe was based around because I didn't want people in heavy winter jackets. Like Holly's got her cool leather jacket. It's a light, light costumes and very cold weather to get that in. And specifically, there's a scene in a playground between Holly and Casper, which is one of my favorite scenes in the film. And it was so fucking cold. And they were just such unbelievable champs about it. They were rushing to the warm-up van between every take and sitting on a cold metal playground structure while they delivered these sort of very thematically important and emotional lines and that were also had to be funny. And they just nailed it. And I am very grateful to the cast. It moves so quickly. Did you end up editing your own film or did you hire an editor? I did. Yeah, I, I edited it. And then basically for the first few months, I, I was not comfortable letting someone else touch it for the first little bit. I needed to cut it and do my version of the film. And But then I did get to a point where I was like, okay, this is good, but I am hitting a wall where I'm losing my objectivity, where I know that this can be elevated to a new place, but I am too stuck in what I've done and what I know about it. And we brought in this other editor named Matthew Amast, 
who's worked on the show Cardinal and a bunch of other stuff, and he's a very accomplished editor. And he basically uh, took my edit and just did a pass himself and just did in some scenes, just a couple of tiny little tweaks. He did one big structural change involving Doris and the introduction of Doris, which really helped unlock the pacing of that section of the film. And just really, I can't say enough, he just elevated, he just brought it to the next level. He just was working pretty good. And then that was what it needed to be, to be polished. Yeah. Which was a great collaboration. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the cold, but what about the COVID? How was that as far as like shooting and safety conditions? Yeah. I'm very proud that no one caught COVID on our set. We were shooting in a real danger zone when we were shooting the bunker stuff. There was another film just across the lot that like got shut down twice while we were there for COVID. So I am proud. I think we did a good job of, of avoiding that. No one, no, no cases, which is good because I don't know how we would have afforded to keep going if we hadn't been able to, if we had shut down, we would have been like, hey, Reese, so I want to come back from your comedy tour to do a couple of pickup shots in Hamilton. And I'm grateful that that worked out. Yeah. I'm not really good at following the rules, like the COVID protocols, <laughs> like keeping my mask all the time because we constantly have to go on set and then come out and then it's like on and off. On and off. So I'm not really good with that, but I stayed pretty secluded. You're also one of the people whose job it was to not wear a mask. So it's, <laughs> yeah. Gabrielle, how do you find a character like Holly? Or just what's your method when it comes to building a character? I think I got coaching. And that's the main thing that my acting teacher told me to do was immerse myself in the music, just to constantly do that. And then listen to it and experiment with how Holly moves and her voice and her attitude. And so music is the big thing for me. And then just looking at like the script as a whole and then looking at the trajectory of Holly's story. And she makes a full circle because she goes from not, she used to care and then she just stopped caring. And then this thing happened and she also like, going back to who she really is and how that happens and like all the important, you know, parts in the story that get her to that. Yeah. By the end, you're leading an army. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Gabby was amazing through the, she really was so committed. And so like, just from day one, moment one, just had the character down and just was, uh, she was a rock to the whole thing. Really real good actor. Miss Gabby. I think that helped too. Like just, such a badass look. I loved it. Yeah. You said you guys had Reese for 15 days. How long did the shoot take in total? It uh, was 18 days in total. And uh, yeah. So yeah, short. <laughs> when Reese was on board, Reese is, Reese Darby is one of the funniest people on the planet. He's unbelievably funny and he is an improv whiz and he is so like quick. And when we got Reese, as Casper, I immediately knew that despite our budget level, having two cameras was probably going to be essential. Like we were going to need a, we were going to need Holly and Casper both there at the same time and to have the two actors like able to play off each other and to be able to get reactions and improv and have all that be captured and usable in the edit. And so that was a decision made early on. That with a different actor, you might want to shoot this a little differently in terms of how the camera would move for some of the dialogue scenes. But like this, it was essential for who we had and what we were doing. 
that we shot it this way and that it was, yeah, we didn't lose any because it was gold. Like the, the improv that Gabby and Reese did together was like, you needed, you needed that on camera. Seems a little unconventional, but I can totally see why you'd want to do that. Oh, that's not a thing? You have two cameras? Uh, it depends on the budget level. It's definitely a thing if you have money, but it's a lot cheaper to have one camera. It's, it's the whole thing of, but time is money too. And if you can get what you need with two cameras, it's probably worth it, basically. But it's a trade-off, right? Like the, you having two cameras limits what you can shoot with one of the cameras because the other camera might be in the shot. Like it, you make sacrifices when you do that, but I thought it was one that was worth making. But so when is the first time you guys see this with an audience? At the screening at Fantasia that happened last week. I think, Gabby, you basically hadn't seen any of it, right? Like you had seen a couple little clips for your ADR, which was a bit of a, as a side note, was a bit of a clusterfuck for, for Gabby. We had to record ADR to get the film ready for Fantasia. And thankfully, very little for, for, for Gabby but there, there was some stuff we needed and we booked her at a recording studio fully being like, we need ADR recording for a movie. And she came in and in Ottawa where she was doing a movie and we zoomed in and we were just like, okay, let's see the footage up on the screen for her to record ADR to. And they were just like, what footage, what video? Like the, the, And so that was a real, that was a real heart in the throat moment. And, Gavi was a real pro and made it work regardless. That was a scary <laughs> situation. But uh, the first time Gavi saw it was Fantasia. And the first time I saw it with more than six people was that, which was really cool. How many times did you see it? Like, how many times have you watched it? Obviously, the editing stuff. Yeah. Counting when I'm editing it, hundreds. But like, in terms of no stopping front to back with a group of people, Probably like 15 to 20, something like that. Yeah. But <laughs> ever get tired of it? Yes. <laughs> Very much. But that you like, we're like, ah, I wish I'd change that. I wish I'd change that. Or, yeah, yeah. 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 That's all I see. All I see is the stuff that I wish I had done differently or better. But I will say the Fantasia screening was very special because that was seeing with an audience full of people that laughed at all the jokes and that cheered at a couple of the big moments was like that, that, that really allowed me to silence my inner self-critic for at least a little bit and enjoy the experience. It was really great. Yeah. yeah I loved it. I loved it too. It was like interesting for me too, because it was the first time I saw it. So I'm also, I also have the actor's brain on and I'm like, mm, well, that was good. I don't know. But well, after I told Luke, I was like, it was amazing. It was, I loved it. It was so funny. And I loved I was surprised with how much improv that they kept. I loved the scene at the park. Yeah, it was just so fun. And I hope a lot of people get to see it. I was very emotionally prepared for 90 minutes of uncomfortable silence. I was really like, like letting myself, if it happens, you just have to be ready for it if it happens. But yeah, when we got the first laugh, I was like, okay. And then it just kept going all through. And it was a magical experience. It was really great. Yeah. Did they laugh or react to anything that you were surprised? Yeah, a few times, actually. They, they laughed at all the stuff that I wanted them to laugh at, which was great. But yeah, there was a few things. There was a couple times where a joke that I was actually expecting to get a big laugh got almost drowned out by people laughing at something a moment before that I hadn't thought was a big laugh line. Like, But it's 
a couple times in in your first diner scene with Reese with uh, with the balls, there's some like a bunch of back and forth patter there, and there was like I'd be like, oh, this line's coming out, they're gonna laugh at, and then they instead laughed at the line right before it, and so yeah, but it was yeah, it was great. The yeah, it was great. People people liked it. Surprised <laughs> how much when Holly's like smokes Doris, like when she turns into dust, like how much of a proud moment that was for everyone. I was like, wow, everyone was clapping, and I was like, wow. Yeah, people clapping and cheering for that sort of big climactic moment was uh, that's uh, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna remember that for a while. That was a good feeling. Yeah. So what now? What's next for the film? Um, we are we've submitted to some more festivals, and there's interesting people that are watching the film. We're trying to figure out the distribution rights for North America right now. Hopefully, I will have news on that soon, but I can't say yet. But regardless, in 2023, it will be getting it will be getting a wide release, and uh, yeah, very excited for people to see. Now, is this a full time job for you now, trying to get it out there and get the distribution and all this kind of stuff, or are you working on other things at the same time? It could be if it paid, but no, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm back to editing right now, but uh, but I'm doing this sort of in when I'm not raising a baby or or editing for money, I'm doing stuff for relax and but uh, but yeah. It's all going well. I've got a great, the producing team on the film is fantastic. Wango Films is really, they've been shepherding the thing the whole time and they're on top of it. I'm excited. I'm excited for the next steps. Gabrielle, I know that you probably are just out there auditioning, doing your thing, because I know it is always go for actors and actresses. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's all that it is. It turned, it's, just, it's like a, it's a job. That's what I'm doing all day, every day is memorizing lines and auditioning, memorizing lines and auditions. And I, I take classes as well. And I'm going to go to Italy for an acting intensive. That's what I do in between my jobs. So, like, I don't know. I see it as a sport. Just to keep fine tuning. Italy in December sounds a lot nicer than Toronto in December. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you guys in the film online? You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Luke Cuts Video and on Instagram, Relax the Movie has an account that's starting to get a little more active. And uh, yeah, and uh, look up, look up Relax them from the Future. And uh, there's, there's stuff coming out significantly every few days, which has been nice. As of today, we're 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, 100% fresh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Excellent. Gabrielle, how about yourself? Are you on the socials? I I deleted my Instagram for a bit, but it's not deactivated. So if you want to follow me, my Instagram, Graham, my last name, Graham, Gabrielle. Luke, Gabrielle, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Mike. This thing has been great to do. Thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. If you want to hear more of what's playing at the Fantasia Film Festival, be sure to check out FantasiaFestival.com today.